Welcome to The Something Forum by Echo & Co., a podcast where we talk about digital and organizational transformation, innovation, and nonprofits, and hope you learn something along the way. For this series, we're turning the spotlight on our Echo colleagues, featuring a different guest each week. This week, we welcome Peter Sachs, partner and CTO. Peter will talk to us about how music was part of his journey to becoming a developer and his philosophy on the role. He'll also tell us about how development teams should not have all the answers and give us tips on how to collaborate with other teams to find them. We'll also talk about solving big tech problems, AI, and how young people are giving him hope. And now your host, Andy Vanderland. Welcome back to the Something Forum. I'm with Peter Sachs, guy at Echo. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Peter? Sure can. Hi, I'm Peter Sachs. I'm a CTO and a partner here at Echo and Company. What do you do? How long have you been with Echo? How did you come about being partner and CTO? Great. Um, so uh, I've been here for a long time. And so uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to give a, my best condensed version of the story. So I started as a developer in 2012. Um, you know, worked as a, as a developer and a tech lead here for a few years. In 2014, Graziella Jackson, our CEO and my partner, joined at, um, as a UX director. And it was actually maybe a year or so before we started working together. Um, And when we did, I think one of the things that brought us together was what I think we're going to talk about a little bit today. um, Around, yeah, but I won't get too into it, but, but just about what it means to be a developer and to try to and what it means to try to write a recipe for how something ought to get built. Um, she brought a lot of sophistication. We had, you know, we were still in the era before she came here of sort of generalist project managers who were like liberal arts graduates and had a broad skill set. Um, and did everything from wireframes to account management to project management and everything. And Graziella brought with her um, the body of UX knowledge from her experience at Navigation Arts and Organic and um, just a lot more sophistication. And we found that when we sort of started to dissect her wireframes, there were just a lot more questions that needed to be asked and answered and, and I just found it to be, it was really my first exposure to all of that. And I just was really, really fascinated by all of it. Um, anyway, to finish my intro, you know, fast forward a couple years and she, with my, with a little help from me, had taken over leadership of the company in late 2015, I think. Um, we acquired the company together in 2019. Um, and since around 2019, 2020, I've also sort of been shifting into a more operational oriented role, focusing on stuff like finance and hiring and managing our team's performance expectations and stuff. But that's for another, another conversation. Um, so, yeah, that's my super succinct summary of myself. 
The so you're in tech now as a developer, and then you're moving in or doing more operation stuff. What brought you into tech and development? Because you also have a background in music. You have guitars behind you. You facilitate our music channel in Slack. Yes. So um, I actually I think that my earliest interest in coding was was in music. I studied music at Wesleyan University, which has a very eclectic music program. Um, kind of has everything except for dead white guy music. I think I can say that. Um, and um, what's an example of dead white guy music? Um, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, classical music, romantic music, etc. So yeah, um, but uh, there, you know, there's a really great Javanese gamelan program there, which is a really great whole musical tradition. Um, I studied a lot of music from Ghana, um, and there's also a lot of experimental music in the tradition of like John Cage for all you uh, deep music nerds out there. Um, but I some links in our show notes. Nice. Nice. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so, uh, I, for, I think the first code that I wrote was in a music synthesis language called super collider, where you actually write code that, um, that calls functions that actually are like, oscillators like um sine wave or square wave oscillators and you put all this stuff together and you can like compose music in a programming language i think that was my first exposure to it um i graduated as a music major and i i I like to think i wasn't surprised that there were no options for making money (laughs) at all um and i pretty much pretty quickly ended up with uh php for dummies in 2001 to date myself. And, um, you know, I just got really, really into it. The, the, the sort of, um, you know, people say that music is, is that a lot of, there's a lot of overlap with, with math. Um, and the sort of left, you know, it's very a right brained activity, but it's also a left brained activity and that, mm. and it's sort of, uh, writing code sort of tickled, this um part of my interest that i was uh that i uh didn't know i had i guess oh there's one other thing that i'm just remembering right now and that was i took it and this is actually a funny classic like liberal arts class uh, um, (laughs) class story i took a class called um oh i don't even remember what it was called but the first third of it was reading the book goodell escher bach which is about how those three people are related. And the second third of it was natural deduction proofs, which are, which use Greek letters and are basically computational logic. It's exactly the same. It's conditional statements. um, And that's uh, that between that and super collider, I actually had a really decent like beginning foundation for learning to code later. And then I just, you know, did friends' websites and various different kinds of websites and uh, did like a custom content management system in PHP and uh, Mm. took it from there. Yeah. Wow. I agree. I think a lot of times people are like math and dev and that kind of thing. It's really cool to hear about the music part. 
bring in that. Um, I think like it might open up possibilities to people because I exclude myself from devs. I'm like, I can't do a JavaScript. I just like can't deal with it. Um, but also because I assume like I, my brain just doesn't work that way. But maybe I've been telling myself the wrong story. The whole sure. Time. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways to engage with code, I think. And, and, and I think that, I think you're right. I think a lot of people do are sort of culturally trained to, to, to believe that they, um, that it, that it isn't for them. Of course, there are obviously going to be people that, you know, just don't like it. And I think that's okay too. <laughs> right. <laughs> When we were talking earlier in prep for this, you had some really interesting takes on the role developers play and sort of um, the caricature of them maybe on the team. Can you tell me and our listeners about that? Like what assumptions do people have about who and how devs interact with within the team? Love to. Um Listener, let me tell you a story. Sorry, I, I can't, I have to address, I have to say listener because that's what Jason Baton does on Smartless. And so. Uh, <laughs> Great, do it. Yeah, we're here for it. Um, yeah, so this kind of goes back to, this was something that Graz, Graziella and I talked about when we were getting to, getting to know each other and getting to understand our approaches to work. Um, you know, up until that point, I had seen a lot of um, uh, of this dynamic where the developer is sort of revered as the solver of all problems, kind of. And there, the the developer is handed a wireframe, which is sort of like a blueprint for the for the website. And is and is sort of like revered as the person who is meant to be able to sort of like interpret, almost like kind of read the tea leaves of what this wireframe means and how it ought to be built. And you know, as you dig into the questions around how a wireframe ought to be built and what a given component in a blueprint for a website, what it is, how it should behave, how it ought to be able to edit, how it needs to be able to be edited, where it can be positioned and where it can't be positioned. All these rules are rules that a coder has no business making. These are content strategy and user experience strategy decisions because they have huge implications for the end user experience and for how the content on the site is organized. Now, the space has matured a lot since then. And, you know, this is not something that's like super unique to us, but I still do see it out there in the world a lot. And it's parodied beautifully on shows like Silicon Valley, um, <laughs> which we may not be able to say. So on shows like Beep, um, I don't know. I don't know the rules. Um, but uh, I don't think we have them around being, mentioning TV shows. <laughs> sweet. All right. I'm going to just do nothing but list TV shows now. Um, so free. I'm free. So, um, but parodied really well on shows like that where you have, you know, 
this almost like cowboyistic, I just coined that term, uh, like uh, American individualist kind of, so this like almost cultural caricature of this like, you know, um, sort of masculine problem solver who's like going to figure it out for you type of thing. Mm. And it just really is, you know, in the same way that that stereotype is toxic. In other ways, it's toxic for the end process of the, of the site. You know, there are, and, and I actually, it, since the last time we spoke about what we were going to talk about, Andy, I, I looked up a couple of, examples of questions that we ask to try to get at these things, but we can get to that whenever it, it makes sense. So that's, that's sort of my, um, uh, that's, that's, that's my spicy take on the, uh, hot take? Uh, that's my hot take on, on American <laughs> individualism and cowboys meets and meets how it intersects yeah. with development teams. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, our team, doesn't have that vibe. I mean, I'm sure our we ask devs a lot, but the devs don't come in. I don't feel like with this, I can solve all the problems and leave me be so I can just do it. They're really collaborative and they ask questions. Do we have like self-selecting applicants or is it part of what you look for when you're hiring devs? That's a great question. Um, I think that I deliberately look for this when I'm interviewing developers. Yeah. I don't think that people who pride themselves on making decisions that are outside of their expertise area will be able to be successful here. And that isn't to say that it's impossible for someone to have expertise in UX and in coding, you know, there, there is a, there are, there's a broad skill set that developers can have from back end to front end to design to UX. And you'll find people out there these days that are really credible UX folks and maybe are also like sort of front end or front of the front end, as they say, developers. Um, Wait, what does front of the front end mean? Oh, okay. So I can't remember who coined this term, but um, maybe I'll we'll we'll get it in the links. Um, sure, notes, I love them. Even though I never put them up, but anyway, I love the idea <laughs> of them. <laughs> in the abstract, um, <laughs> dear listener, we commit to providing show notes for for this article. It's a great article that. Um, that I read once or maybe it was a combination of articles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, so front-end developers, right, in, a, in modern frameworks like React or Vue, the best one, um, are... <laughs> are uh, guys, don't worry. <laughs> are, um, you know, can have a range of skills that range from sort of back-end-like skills that are about um, data and wiring things up to the data source and making API calls, perhaps to some extent, it could be considered a back of the back end 
skill set to write the code that manages the state of the application. That is, that keeps track of what state the <laughs> circular definition here, but of what state the application is in, what has been clicked on it, what has been changed since the page loaded. Um, and then you on the front of the front end at the at sort of the vanguard of that, you'll have something like design skills, advanced CSS, or just really great um, CSS knowledge um, and a, an ability to match designs sort of pixel for pixel or, or even to design. Um, so front of the front end is, is a little more about display and presentation and back end is about like sort of getting, fetching the data and wiring it all up. Thank you. You got it. Interrupted you and we're talking about hiring people and that you, you know, we might have a little bit of self-selection, but you're also, because we work in nonprofits, we're pretty progressive, um, which tends to bring in people who are about, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion and, you know, empathy and those types of um, traits. And you also select for it yourself. Like you're keep an eye on it to make sure that we're building a team that is about um, asking questions and providing expertise in a way that's collaborative. Does that sound about right? Sure. Although you could probably write a dissertation about whether the, whether it holds water that in the nonprofit or even in the progressive space that these kinds of like this sort of like um, sort of hyper masculine heroics as a as it applies to tech. Are, are more are really less prevalent there. I think you could probably make an argument that may, maybe not, um, but I, yeah, that's I guess. Yeah, a good point. Yeah, but anyway. Certainly our marketing and the way we talk about it internally, but I don't know how much we put it out there externally. I haven't looked at our hiring page in a while. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. I made a lot of assumptions in that. No, but they're interesting. It's it's interesting. But yeah, I, I do think that uh, we, we do strive to have to, to not be like that. And I think that where, where our devs really shine and what I encourage them to do is to be able to identify those decision points mm -hmm. and identify the ambiguity, but not attempt to solve it on their own and try to help participate in routing the right questions to the right people. But we also, it's all about our specking process that's how all this ambiguity is is reduced best at the at the outset at the beginning you know asking all the questions in advance did you so when you had this conversation many years ago was it hard to get the team to sort of transition from the i can solve and answer all of the questions i can solve all the problems and answer all of the questions to shifting to, okay, this is the question I have. This is a point of ambiguity. And then taking that to someone else, like a UX designer or, you know, the strategist or someone to get clarity on it. That's a great question. Um, I, I can remember a lot of times when developers sort of felt relieved by being encouraged to identify but not solve ambiguity in the specification, right? Um, and yeah, so I think oftentimes it's welcome. I think folks who view themselves as 
having expertise in those areas um, might, you know, might bristle a little. And I think we've probably had those experiences too, where folks bristle a little bit because they want to be, um, you know, they, they, they want to be, they view themselves as having that expertise. Um, but, um, you know, we, we have really high standards for what constitutes, um, you know, the right kind of UX training and, um, mm. without, you know, without sounding too stentorian about all of it, you know, it, it's, uh, we do have really specialized experts on staff here about that stuff and like mm -hmm. it's good for them to weigh in hopefully in advance. You said that you have worked on like what kind of questions you want your devs teams to ask. Can you give us some of those to help identify these decision points and you know areas of ambiguity? Sure. Yeah, I actually, it, it kind of dovetails with a conversation that you and I have sort of been having on an ongoing basis for years, which is like <laughs> how to provide a framework for how and whether to provide a framework for the language that defines maybe a requirement or even that, mm -hmm. that defines technical specification. A lot of folks, when it comes to tech spec, use user stories and acceptance or and or acceptance criteria and those are great but they that the as frameworks they're actually pretty thin a user story it just asks you to take um the information that you're making available and to stick it into a format of like you know brackets certain types of certain type of person and bracket can do this. You're putting it into the user's perspective. That's like a nice note, but it doesn't constitute to me uh, a way to be sure that you're trying to surface and answer all questions. So uh, Echo, we work on kind of broadly speaking, two different kinds of projects. One of them is like a content-oriented website, which will, will usually be Drupal, sometimes WordPress. Um, almost never or exactly never Joomla. I'm um, just throwing <laughs> that out there. Um, okay, we can get Another the uh, Joomla. Take. Yeah. So <laughs> get the Joomla backers. I can pile on the comments if there are comments. Um, <laughs> but uh, so a content driven website, right? That's, that's meant to be consumed, um, read. It doesn't typically, a typical page doesn't have a ton of interactivity. It's somewhere you go to read, not somewhere you go to do something. Um, and we have a certain set of questions that we try to ask for that kind of application. And it's very different than the questions that might need to be asked for a more highly, in, for a highly interactive um, uh, application. On a specific client's application. Uh, most recently, we are working on an application that allows end users to apply for micro credentials. And uh, it's highly interactive. Um, and uh, another example is we worked in, on a 
um, social work nonprofits, sort of back-end IT, custom IT program that facilitated their, um, their service offering, which was to place um, social workers into school districts and um, c- um, gather data about students and use that data to connect the students with um, pre-existing social safety net programs. So it's like a matchmaking service between um, uh, students and and services that they can benefit from, students in need. Anyway, applications. When it's somewhere you go to do something, you click around and the interface changes in response to what you're doing, then you need a very different kind of specification. So for the, I'll start with the latter. For something like that, here are as a, sorry, our start of listing of questions. When we're looking at a particular component on the site and trying to define its logic, where is it? Where does it appear? Below what? Above what? Is it always in the same position? The second thing is under what circumstances does it appear? Is there some logic by which it does not show up or shows up? So uh, the third question is the initial state. Is the initial state static or dynamic? When it loads, is it the same every time or does it change based on some circumstances? Maybe um, where it is on a page, which kind of page it's on, who's viewing it. And the fourth criteria is the interactive state. Does it change? Does the component's content change based on an end user interacting with it? And that, that stuff can be expressed in terms of a trigger and the change in these sort of pairs. So those are the things that we focus on when we're looking at defining a component on an interactive application. At the risk of talking forever, I will summarize the ones we use for a content-driven website, which are pretty simple. How is the content stored? We spec in terms of the actual content structures that are available in the CMS we're using. Drupal has nodes and blocks and paragraphs, items, and certain types of things. So where does it live? Where does the content live inside those things? Which little pieces of content are required? Which ones are optional? Can the content be repositioned on the page? That is, can the end user decide where, sorry, the content manager decide where it goes? And the last question is, can pre-existing content be repurposed for this, or do you have to make a new one when you're putting one on the page? Um, so these may or may not be like the most complete or perfect sets of questions, right? But if all you're doing is is user stories and saying like, as a person reading the website, I can read a headline and some content, it just doesn't do enough hmm. to my favorite word, disambiguate the, the situation. You just, you just, you're, <laughs> you don't have the information you need to know what it is you're dealing with. And you're going to end up to bring it full circle with a developer chewing on a piece of hay straw. 
making <laughs> making uh, independent minded decisions. I thought your favorite word was elucidate. It used to be until yeah. I read the Babok, the business analysis body of knowledge, and and it it uses elicit. And oh, I think okay. I was just making up elucidate. But elucidate is a great word. It is. You, I love it. you excel at making long words. <laughs> In my executive feedback, I was told that in not to, not so many words. <laughs> I'm working on trying not to. Uh, I swear I don't do it to be pretentious, but um, I don't expect <laughs> I to be believed. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a time and place for long combo words. Sure. Like German. <laughs> um, I think you're right. Like user stories don't provide, to me, those aren't specs. Those are something else. They're user stories, right? They might provide mm-hmm. like what the goal is for the user, very specific goal, not like high level objectives. Like they are trying to register for the thing. Um, but the specs need to say like when they click the button, the button changes colors and it goes here and that never changes or that always changes. And like, you know, it's a, I can't think of it. Like where it changes colors every time you load the page. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Like a rant, like a random color display. Randomizer yeah. for the button yeah. color. Uh, yes. Awesome design. Everybody We're should definitely <laughs> might be that. red, might be green. Who knows what it means, but I take <laughs> no. your point. I do take your point. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I think that's really helpful because user stories aren't specs. Well, I have seen them used as such recently yeah. by by other, uh, we'll say, by other organizations where where that's like sort of really the only guideline, um, the only sort of framework hmm. for how a technical lead is expected to sort of know what information to provide, and and I just I really do think it's insufficient. Yeah. Have you seen it working well in that type of situation? No, no. No, you haven't? I've seen it be a disaster. I'm wondering if it works better for teams that are really specifically focused on one product, perhaps, and they know it very well. So like the branding, all of that, I don't know, whatever. Well, I don't want to say that the use of user stories automatically means that 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 spec is bad. Yeah. It's just as a, as a sort of imperative to a tech lead or an, a lead analyst or whoever is sort of like parsing the wireframes to try to determine what is really there and how it changes as a framework for that person, it's just very thin. And so you can have great specs that are written in the form of user stories or in the form of acceptance criteria, which I, remember off the top of my head what that sort of like mad lib is for good acceptance criteria but you know they don't prevent good spec but they alone are often taken to mean that as long as it's in this framework you've done a good job and it's just not right which is not true no (laughs) um before i switch over to our sort of rapid response uh podcast episodes is there anything else you want to add to this idea of developers, you know, being a more collaborative role and identifying ambiguity and seeking out support and answers from their team? 
I recover every thought you've ever had on the subject. Yes, I've never had another thought. I just, I guess I'll just reemphasize that like it ought to happen upstream. Like there shouldn't mm. be any ambiguity. There's no reason for there to be ambiguity when it gets to a developer. Like it, it, it ought not to be this process where, um, where a, a developer is sort of like tasked with finding the ambiguity. Like it, mm, it mm-hmm. you can dig deep enough to eliminate ambiguity from tickets at least that are underneath a threshold of complexity when something gets super complex on a more interactive application stuff is going to come up things are going to surface in qa that's another thing i see a lot of times though is just like you go straight from a wireframe to a developer and the expectation is just that everything will get ironed out in qa Mm. and then you're setting yourself up for a nightmare triage process where there's yeah, I tons, of new feature, <laughs> tons of new feature requests coming in because if you haven't written a good spec in advance that's been approved, then on what yeah. basis is a project manager to, to, to understand whether some complaint about a component that's been delivered for testing isn't the way the client wants it to be? Well, there's no way to say whether it was built as designed or built as it was meant to be or not. And I've seen a lot of emphasis, way too much emphasis be on the back end of that process. And I've seen it just be, I've seen it take years to fix. Yeah. That sounds really demoralizing for the team too. It's like, I didn't know I did what I knew. And now you're telling me it's wrong. Like that should all be up front. Should all be on yeah. the other side of the work. Yep. Do you have, like, at what point would you want devs involved? If we're thinking of sort of our echo waterfall-ish process from like strategy, we do, generally we do a strategy, we do design and content work, uh, UX design, content develop, our content strategy, visual design, then it sort of goes into dev it's a little bit more cyclical than this and then we go into qa where do you want devs to come in like the strategy lead or i mean the tech strategist on the project yeah the beginning very beginning yeah you know you know who doesn't love to um have everyone involved from early on but you know the answer is actually more complex than that that that's the easy answer Yeah, yeah but how do you do things in a lean way where you're not having um, a senior asset um, sitting on on a project from really early on. Um, we have a, a series of deliverables. We I think the the conceptual model is a great place to start, which is our sort of like first sort of expression of the kinds of content that will be on which kind of page. It's not at all a um, display deliverable, um, but it starts to talk about what kinds of content are going to be prioritized on different types of content. Um, I think I just spoke circularly, but anyway. Um, so, uh, and, and then after that, we'll do page definition diagrams. These are, uh, this is something that's owned by content strategy. And these are also not a display-oriented deliverable, but they get down to the component by component level and page by page. What components are good? What 
components for sure. What components <laughs> are going to be um, included on which page and what kind of content visually, what sort of like quote unquote fields will they contain? They'll have sort of like a headline, they'll have an image. This is where text starts to become really useful and, um, and, uh, and trying to just make sure that they understand the system that's being designed here of, of content. Because in the end, I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that the content management system and the rules that you write into it are that's the very thing that causes the end user's experience to conform to the rules that it needs to conform to to be a successful experience right so it's like if there weren't rules in the content management system that decided what you can and can't do and put parameters around things then there won't be the consistency that a user experience expert and a content strategy expert are in charge of creating. Um, okay, in our last 10-ish minutes, a little less, we're going to do the rapid answer I don't want to say fire, but anyway, I'm going to ask you a question. We're going like to go through the like episode. A theme song. This, this section means like a pew, 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 pew. Rapid. We did it. <laughs> I say can't be rapid fire, though. It has to be like a decolonized, like no yeah, war. Rapid uh, candy sharing. Rapid candy sharing. Glitter explosion. <laughs> glitter ball. Glitter sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh so we do four episodes uh usually we're just going to do them really quick with you the first one is our break room chat and our question is what's something people who are familiar with echo and co don't know but they should know about echo and co oh geez that's a tough one um <laughs> Um, we're, um, I mean, I think that we're pretty fun loving. We're a pretty fun bunch. And, um, I know that we have, we actually have done some brand research and we, you know, we, I, I feel like I have a good, like some, a better understanding now of how we're landing, which is like, we're very, you know, we're very, very thorough and we're, you know, we, we, um, uh, we are kind of like the. Well, we're just very, very thorough, and um, <laughs> and I, you know, we we're also a really, you know, we we are a fun bunch, and um, you know, I think that you know that that's a nice balance. I, that's a good point. We come off as quite serious, but we also do love fun. <laughs> it can be silly. <laughs> um, okay, our pop quiz thoughts on a specific thing. Okay. How do we develop the next truly great thing? These are hard. I picked hard ones. How do we this develop time. the next truly <laughs> great thing? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, I mean, I out myself as a bit of a, 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 a pessimist in some ways, and it's it's easier for me to think about solving problems than it is to um, to think about creating new awesome stuff. 
which fits as like a as like a technical person. Um, it, that sort of fits. But uh, it was a question: How do we develop? The, how do we you know can, what the next big thing to? Yeah, what the but next if great you want to solve is? a problem, what problem do you want to solve, and how might you? Oh, geez. All right. So AI. Mm. This is gonna get dark real fast. But um, uh, okay. So flooding the zone with shit is is like in the sort of. Um, fascist playbook right and ai the before ai becomes sentient and like says hello to us and wants to eat us for breakfast before that happens and i did read the singularity as near when i was 22 and i did think it was super fascinating but um what's gonna happen first is that the zone is going to get flooded with shit in a way that we can't even begin to understand right mm-hmm. now um and what that means when they say flood the zone is just like fill the social media and like all the informational spaces with so much bs that that there's not time to even separate the wheat from the chaff or even say anything about anything yet because it's coming so fast and furious yeah, and the pace now. of that has already without ai gotten to a point where society cannot bear it and it's going to be about a thousand X in about a year. And how might we solve that? I think we just need a really different outlook on what it means to for content to be moderated. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to free speech, I personally am very much on the side of um, the freedom for a platform to moderate content. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that um, uh, we just really need to take a real hard look at um, what kind of an information space we want in the world. I said we were Great. fun, though. That's okay. I'll end with a book wreck. I, re- I read this years ago. The Ancillary Justice is a book in it in the series. I can't remember the name of the series. Um, but it's AI, like walking around. It's very cool. And it's maybe a little bit less pessimistic, but it's like, you know, a thousand years from now. So we have to go through the shit before we get there. Certainly um, going to do that. <laughs> I want to have a conversation about the AI stuff. Maybe we'll do another episode because it's really a question I have about like, I think we need to slow down, but how do we and still innovate in this space? Cause people aren't going to stop. No. So I don't know. That's stuff for a future time. There's okay. a there's a metaphor for that that's been around a while called Pandora's box and uh, or putting toothpaste back in the tube, which is a little newer, but it's you know it's not going back. Yeah, in there. but we kept hope in the jar. Pandora's jar kept hope, so that's good. Oh, you'll have to fill me in on the extended version of that metaphor. I guess I'm using it lazily. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I hope. didn't know about that hope. part. <laughs> <laughs> all the despair, all the bad stuff, but we also kept hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, why can't we just? What's your favorite or uncomfortable question you hear or gets asked of you? Um, I'm, just, I'm sort of on the tip of my mind. The, the best question to hear, I'll have to probably arrive at it as I like speak to think here, but what's really rewarding is when, uh, w- when a client gets to a point where they are ready to take a look at the 
pace of their production of content and how they're using their website and how they're using digital and um, and they're sort of ready. They get to this point where they're ready to take a step back and say, you know what? There, there are things that need to change about our organization bef- that are standing in the way of us producing experiences for our end users that happen in a mental model that fits the end user, right? That's the whole goal of all this work is to be able to present experiences that meet people where they're at and don't ask them to do a lot of cognitive work to try to like superimpose their mental model onto the the organizations, right? And when we get questions from, I guess I can't really think of exactly what the question would be, but when we're working with a prospect or even a client that we've been working with and they get to the point where they're like, all right, so what's it going to take for us to work with you to figure out how we're going to change the game internally and, and, and sort of reframe our work to stop getting hung up on, on all these obstacles that make it so we can't produce work that in content that people can really understand and relate to. Um, that is that that question can come in a variety of forms we sort of joke here internally that oftentimes when we're pitching clients will lose the first round because it, people are a little overwhelmed and they're not sure if they really need to do so much or ask so many hard questions and they decide to go forward with a redesign and they come back to us 18 months later almost like you could set a clock to it sometimes asking these kind of questions that are like, all right, what do we really need to do? Because this didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Our last question. I feel like that was an awkward transition, but I don't have anything to add. It was great. Thank you. <laughs> you can always, you can always say, uh, speaking of transitions. <laughs> great. Speaking of transitions, <laughs> um, we're going to end on our toasts and what we want to like, what is giving you hope right now? Clearly not AI. Um, okay, young people. I think young oh. people are pretty on point. Um, I think that there's a lot of compassion um, in you know among the younger folk um, these days, and um, that is going to be, you know, it's interesting as like a middle-aged dude, (laughs) it's interesting to sort of see all the, so many subtle things that I kind of took for granted that like, I thought that when I, by the time I was middle-aged, everything would be for me, like it was for my parents. But a lot of those things just stuck to my generation. (laughs) Um, And I guess it's hard to think of examples, but you know, my generation's kind of the way it always has been in a lot of ways. And the world has, has like had to accommodate it. And I'm like a late X or Xennial senior Xennial. Um, <laughs> I'm in the, the middle one, the weird three year 77 to 80, like nano generation. But anyway, um, <laughs> but I think that, you know, the, the values that a lot of the kids have these days, um, it's giving hope. 
Oh, what a lovely way to end. Peter, Peter Sachs from Echo and Co. Thank you so much. I love this conversation. I say this all the time. I genuinely love all of our conversations. You and I chat about random stuff for years and it's great. I love how we just sort of dig in and refuse to let things go and really understand or explore the possibilities of whatever topic. They've been broad and I'm glad to bring this to our listeners because it's really, really fun. Always super fun. And thank you for all the work you're doing on this podcast. You're such an awesome host and it's so cool to see this be something that I actually, you know, can relate to and listen to. It's so cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the something forum. Tune in next week as we continue this spotlight series with our Echo and Co. colleagues. Our host is Andy Vanderland. I'm Melissa Huntley, our editor. The music you hear in this episode is Something About Something by Sarah, the instrumentalist. This podcast is produced by Echo and Co., a digital agency sending creativity on a mission. Music